Welcome to episode 55 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And as we told you last week, we're delighted to be sponsored on this podcast by wealth manager and private bank Coots. Everyone has an idea of their dream home, but currently the property market seems to be moving so fast and be in such flux that it seems hard to know how to take a definite step towards it. Well, look no further because Coots has an expert team who could look at your situation, assess your needs and then design a flexible solution for you so that the minute you find the property you want, you're in a position to move quickly and confidently and importantly, wisely. No one wants to find their perfect house and then not be in a realistic position to buy it or to be panicked into making the wrong decision. Coots could help make sure you're set up for success by knowing what you could borrow and having your finances in place so that you're prepared and ready to act when you find your ideal property. Visit coots.com today to find out how they could help. Now, we're extremely privileged to have one of the great novelists of our time as our first guest today. Rose Tremaine, now Dame Rose Tremaine, as of 2020, began having her novels published in the 1970s. Since then, she's gone on to have a spectacular literary career, winning numerous prizes, including the much-coveted James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Sacred Country, the Orange Prize for The Road Home, and the Whitbread Award Novel of the Year for Music and Silence, which I loved. Fans of her work will know her for her extraordinary history historical detail that she brings to her books, like the wonderful Restoration, which was made into a film in 1995, starring Robert Downey Jr. as the young physician Robert Merivale, Sam Neill as King Charles II, and a host of other huge names, including Hugh Grant, Meg Ryan, and Ian McKellen. Rose has also taught creative writing for years at the University of Anglia, East Anglia rather, Lucky Students, where she's now Chancellor. She lives mainly in Norfolk, but I'm very honoured to have her here with me in London today. Good afternoon, Rose. Now, very sadly, Ed can't be with us today, but I'm very excited to be talking to you about your new book, Lily, which is published the day after tomorrow as we speak. So on Thursday, the 11th of November. I'm lucky enough to have had a sneak preview and I couldn't put it down. Again, you've managed to immerse us fully in Victorian London this time with a gripping melodrama and thrilling tale of revenge reminiscent of a suspense-filled Wilkie Collins novel. So can you start by telling our listeners that premise of the book. This is a girl whose life is doomed right from the start, or appears to be doomed right from the start, in that she's abandoned as a tiny baby, a one-day-old baby, at the gates to a London park, and she's left in a sack and left to die. Uh, but she's saved. Uh, there's a young police constable who comes along and saves her, and he walks through a terrible storm, um, slightly endangering his own life, to get her to the Coram Hospital, which, as we know, was the great edifice built in the 18th century, to take in foundlings. So this is where my little girl, Lily, starts her life. And the, the, um, the way that Coram, which felt itself to be a very benign institution, the way it operated with children is that they kept them for a, a very brief while and then they farmed them out to foster homes, usually outside London, for about five or six years. And this is really, I think, the tragedy of what happened to those kids. They were taken in, then they found themselves in a foster home, usually with benign people, and they were there for five or six years and then abruptly sent back. So imagine, you know, five or six years you've lived with a loving family, you sort of feel that you're part of that family in most cases, and then suddenly you're told that you're not, you're on loan. So that's my premise, that's how it starts off. Well, I was actually fascinated and horrified in equal measure to learn so much about the cruel way that children were treated at Coram, which um, um, Coram still exists today as a charity and as a museum in 
London's Brunswick Square. And I'd love you to tell our listeners a bit about Coram and also what made you want to delve into it so much. My previous novel was set in Victorian times and I felt that I knew, partly this is why I went to this subject at this moment in history, the 1860s, because I felt my head was was already full of um, particularly Victorian London. And in some of the researches I'd done for the previous book, I had found out about founding children, about the Coram Hospital, and some of the, the ways in which the children were treated. But there, you know, there's quite a lot of material on it. And I don't think, for all that it, it um, professed to be a, a, an institution that was, was basically kindly and, and actually saved these lives, there was an enormous emphasis all the way through on... Well, the, the word they used was undeserving, i.e. they were the products of their mother's sin, their illegitimate children, and they, neither they nor the abandoning mothers were considered rarely to be deserving of, of any kindness. As I say, I think the kind of intention of this place was merciful, but that the day-to-day reality of it, the kinds of work that the children were given to do, which was very tough. Little rituals like as soon as they arrived that their, their their heads were shaved and they washed all the way over with um, carbolic soap. Their clothes were taken away and they were put into uniforms. The shoes were taken away and they were given rather insubstantial shoes. There was a lot of, of immediate suffering as well as what I mentioned before, the homesickness for the, the kindly foster families. So... Um, it's, it's a strange amalgam of well-meaning kindness and uh, the day-to-day reality of, of effectively a prison. I think what's really interested me about it was that when you say well-meaning kindness, there was, there was still this very Victorian patriarchal attitude that they knew better. And there were probably lots of children who would, the foster parents would happily have adopted them, but it just wasn't allowed. Why do you think that? Was. But it's a very good question. Why did they take them back? I mean, I, I suspect that there were. I mean, the foster family that I've created in this book is 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 a is a kindly and extremely generous. Although um, they were not not at all a rich family, they were they were very generous with Lily. But they were nevertheless paid to take her for yes. for, for the five years, and then. Um, Yes, the rules were that she was given back one day to the next. And uh, when Nellie, her foster mother, comes to with her back to Coram to give her to give her in again, she takes home a baby boy, yes, which it's is heartbreaking. Just absolutely heartbreaking mm. for everybody. Um, mm. But were all the foster families as lovely as the family that I've um, invented here? Probably not. No. Um, by no means. So, yeah, I mean, imagine, I mean, you and I both have, have children and, and I mean, imagine, you know, that happening aged five or six to, to one of our kids or, in my case, grandchildren. You know, it's just a terrible, terrible thought. I, I mean, ki- unkindness to children just sort of makes me so angry. It makes me, a lot of things make me angry in the modern world, but that makes me just about the most angry of anything. Well, well, this book certainly did that. And I think what you also did so brilliantly in this book was you took me completely by surprise. So I was not expecting the kind of sexual abuse that, that you revealed. And I think it must have been so taboo and unspoken Victorian times that it sort of jumped out. You know, you wouldn't get this in a Wilkie Collins novel. You know? yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and it sort of make it made it so much your own book. You know, it puts your own indelible stamp on it and brought it right up to date psychologically. So I'm really interested to know, did you actually discover any evidence of that at Quorum? I don't think the evidence is there. I just think it just would not, I mean, it's exactly as you said, you wouldn't find it in a Wilkie Collins novel, but you wouldn't find it in the, in the, in the annals of of, 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 of any kind of sheltering, you know, workhouse or place like Coram, you wouldn't find it. But I, I'm sure it existed. This is, I suppose, what 
apart from my immersion in in a, you know Victorian London and all, all of that, which sort of gave me a, a kind of um, a little stepping stone into this into this story. I do think it it really is actually born out of my anger that this is still happening in institutions. Yes, yes. And I learned the other day that at a school um, in Suffolk where my nephews went, a Roman Catholic school. That school, which my sister and brother-in-law paid quite a lot of money to send their children to, has now been accused of abusing kids. I mean, it's 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 sort of around everywhere, and I just I think it's just unbelievably awful. And I wanted to write about it. And it, it felt to me that that is probably what happened in in rare instances. Uh, maybe not so rare. I don't know. We all know this, don't we? If you live in a kind of atmosphere of cruelty, one doesn't stop at one. One cruelty leads to another. And then you get a kind of mindset among the people who are, are perpetrating those cruelties that cruelty is okay. And particularly if you're dealing with, with defenseless children of, you know, five, six, seven, eight, maybe light, something will come to light. But I, I didn't find it. But it, it, I, I think it's not stretching the imagination to um, suggest that it, it was happening. I don't want to say too much because it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but she does sort of get her own back, which leads me on to the the, the love story at the heart of this. Yes, I didn't know where this was going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, is not, this is now an admission moment that when I begin a, bo- a, a novel, it's very important for me to... Obviously, I do some planning. I'm not just writing in a void, but it's very important to me to, to, for it to unfold in the way that our lives unfold. And it felt to me as this story went on, um, she, she, Lily, my little little person who we 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 inter we interweave her childhood with grown-up Lily or nearly grown-up. She's still quite young; she's seventeen, but she's working in London. And she sees this stranger come into the church, and she feels a kind of uh, an attraction to this stranger. She doesn't quite know how to articulate. It's fairly it's fairly innocent, but she has a little vision of them sitting side by side and it's very cold outside and she can sort of feel the warmth of him next to her. And this trope of having the person who is in fact the police constable who saves her as a baby come back into her life seemed to me to be really, really interesting. What happens between the two of them? Does anything happen? What do, what does he feel? What does she feel? I just sort of was groping for that as I went along and, and then stopping to keep asking myself what felt true to the reader. And I hope that how I've organised it, which there is great love there, but it's not able to really express itself. He's married, isn't he? For a he's start. married. He's married, and he's yeah. he's got a, a, a re, he's got he's childless. So there's a, there's a sort of child void at, mm. at the heart of his life and uh, at the heart of his wife's life, who is not a not a um, an unkind person. In fact, rather benign person. But of course, he's 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 tremendously. He doesn't want to feel this sort of attraction that he he's he's quite a lot older, obviously, than than, than seven, my seventeen year old girl. Um, he doesn't want to feel any kind of sexual attraction to her and he hates himself for feeling it and is feels that he's he's kind of betraying what he's done the good that he's done in the world he he feels this is kind of a betrayal that he has these feelings but he he has some feelings aren't always what we want to be feeling are they so so i just sort of let this run and i thought let's see what happens to them and i love the irony that um you know he he's quite high up in the in the police hierarchy and indeed is is investigating he's he's with the murder department so um you know he's investigating uh the crime that she commits yes there's this this sort of um seminal moment and and i i think this this seemed to me to be to be to have a kind of very similitude about it that that um when you fall in love with somebody it's it's not a, a sort of really a steady state it's it's a sort of, <laughs> sort of um or, or i mean it perhaps becomes a steady state but it, there, are, there are kind of extreme moments mm, of mm. 
what you feel at a particular moment and they are imprinted in, in your mind forever. And this is one such moment. I mean, she, uh, Lily, who has no money and, and actually wears very drab clothes because she can't afford better, is lent this dress by her employer who, who, who runs this wonderful wig emporium because um, the employer, Belle, is, is going to, is, they're making wigs for an opera and she's going to take Lily to the opera. So she lends her this scarlet dress. And... Um, Lily alters it. She's a very good seamstress and she, she alters this dress and she puts it on. And it's just at that moment that Sam Trench, the policeman, sort of allegedly on his rounds, but is he's drawn um, in a magnetic way to her door. And she feels that she should hurriedly change out of this red dress back into her ordinary kind of woolen clothes. But she thinks, no, maybe I'd like to, I'd like him to see me like this, looking beautiful. She's stuck a few ringlets in her hair and so on. And of course, this is a very, very extreme moment for him. He suddenly sees the object of his desire, who is quite a sort of ordinary looking young woman, as a, a sudden, there's a sort of beauty in her that he suddenly sees. And that felt real to me, that, that, that the way people change and you suddenly see, a, you suddenly get a vision of mm. that they're beautiful. Or that, or that you feel suddenly beautiful in, yes. the, in, in their eyes. It's a two-way thing, isn't it? I mean, love is so narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, you finished writing that sort of at, towards the end of last year. So what have you been, can you, are you able to tell us what you've been doing this year and what's next? Well, it's with some hesitation that I even mentioned this. Um, when, I was, um, when I first started writing, I was sent off to a boarding school and... Um, the thing we were very keen about at boarding school was was putting on plays, and um, so my first, very first writings were for the stage, and I've now gone back to that, um, and I'm writing a play. Um, I'm not sure that I really know any stagecraft. I do, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, but um, I, I really want to have a go at something new. That the same. I mean, I've written 14. I think it's 14 works, long works of fiction, and, and I thought. Perhaps I need to get out of that for a while anyway and, and, and confront some other form. Um, all the playwrights tell me that actually it's, it's, it, I, that novelists aren't nearly as brave as them because <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to come face to face with their audience in the way that playwrights do. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. And you haven't written a play since you were at school? No. How amazing. Well, everybody, watch this space and we will definitely get you back on if it ever <laughs> happens, which I'm sure it will. But, but you're, you're clearly... <laughs> the way you said, a play. <laughs> so you're obviously quite trepidatious about the whole thing, but huge good luck with it. And it's been thank you. an absolute honour and a pleasure to talk to you. Rose Tremaine, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been, been fun. The Swing is the painter Jean-Honoré Fragonard's most famous work and probably the painting that best represents the 18th century French Rococo movement. It's not a big painting, but by many it's considered the jewel in the crown of the Wallace Collection in Manchester Square in London. The painting, however, remains a bit of a mystery as despite its fame, very little is actually known about it. Throughout this summer, thanks to an award from the Bank of America Art Conservation Project, the painting has undergone technical analysis for the first time ever. So some of the mysteries surrounding the swing and Fragonard's methods as an artist can now be revealed. Here to tell us what was discovered is the director of the Wallace Collection, Dr. Xavier Bray. Good morning, Xavier. Very good morning, Ed. Very nice to hear from you. Good morning, and it's great to have you on, Xavier. Now, the Wallace Collection has the biggest collection of Fragonard's outside France eight in all, spanning Fragonard's entire career. And for the first time, the swing is going to hang alongside the other Fragonards in a relit gallery. Now, no one quite knows how the swing came to be commissioned and why Fragonard undertook a painting with such a scandalous 
theme. Now, for those of you who might never have seen it, it basically shows a man looking up a woman's skirt as he pushes her on a swing. Um, tell our listeners what you found out about it. Well, uh, the first thing is that it is an icon uh, and it really represents the Rococo period to its very best. It's, it has this uh, very erotic undertone. It's playful. It's so much about uh, pushing the worries of life and just enjoying the sensuality of life. And um, it's been hanging here for the last hundred and, uh, well, 120 years since we opened to the public. But it was bought by the fourth Marquis of Hartford in the 1840s. And it, it hadn't really been uh, studied or cleaned it, it because it's such an icon it, it was left alone which you know is probably the right approach for most masterpieces but there was something that uh, really um, um, intrigued us about the painting because you couldn't really un- understand the spatial effect you had the swing that and her on her beautiful pink dress coming out towards us but the rest of the composition was was very lost and so we did a, a cleaning test and we realized how yellowed the varnish was uh, on top of the original surface and that gave us the, the courage and, and the excitement as well internally to, to look into it and go a bit further. And as we very cautiously removed the varnish, we were totally amazed by how the original colours came through, very beautiful pinks, blues, greens, uh, and the subtlety really came out and the spatial effect was even more pronounced than we had ever thought. And so what we saw was this wonderful forest uh, with uh, woodlands, with uh, areas of clearings, but then what is very possible, a a, um, pond or a, a lake with maybe even a fountain coming out and spraying water upwards and possibly even two lovers embracing in the background. So there are little subtleties that have come out. But the main thing is her swinging really far out of the composition, with him uh, this time playing almost a secondary role. He he was always the one that we made fun of. Uh, Look at him. He's supposedly supposed to catch the shoe that she's uh, flung off her foot, but he's instead looking up her her dress. And that was always the attention. But now she really dominates. And that changes, uh, to a certain extent, the dynamics of the the painting. And who was she? Do we know who, who she was? Ah, well, that's the that's the biggest secret of art history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we don't. I mean, the the background story is that um, a painter good, called Doyen was commissioned by a, a young man to paint a portrait of his mistress. He was quite specific what he wanted. He wanted her on the swing. He wanted himself present, and he wanted a bishop to be pulling the ropes of the swing so that she could go up and down at you know at an excessive speed. Let's say um, Doyen said, "I'm sorry, but I just." can't do this kind of composition. It's too risky and the, the church will be on my back. Uh, but I know a good painter who might take on this commission. Uh, his name is Fragonard. And Fragonard, it was a perfect point of his career. He was getting a bit frustrated with the academy, with the uh, the salons, wasn't getting very far and decided to venture out and, and work with very specific types of client, private clientele. And he took on the commission. Now he does remove, the, the old man is not a bishop, he's a elderly man, but not that elderly, he's in his 50s. Again, the cleaning really revealed uh, he's not as old as we thought he was. What's interesting is that there's almost a similarity with the, the younger man. And I like to playfully think, oh, is this father and son? And is this the father teaching his son the tricks of the trades of, you know, seducing and enjoying the beauty of of, the, of feminine presence? Uh, we don't know. Do we know who commissioned it then? We don't know his identity so, either. So no, so this, it must have been a very um, secretive uh, commission. There's no yes, trace very was exciting. left. I love, the, I love the idea of him insisting on a bishop. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's interesting, and it sort of uh, reflects a bit on the on the risk of, of the time. The idea that 
but you've got the church is still very powerful. It's one of the you know the free um, estates uh, with the nobility and the crown, and um, you know that people are still fearful. And yet there is this 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 life going on at court of of complete uh, you know you could say it's dissolute. It's uh, it's uh, almost uh, corrupt of people just completely forgetting the the realities of life and you've got the peasants out there working away while the aristocracy is having a lot of fun and this picture in a way summarizes this very beautifully but i wonder if there is an undertone i always like to think of a political undertone and whether um, there's something more to be discovered is, is there a touch of satire in it uh, is fragonard trying to say a bit more or is he totally wanting to please his client the you know the concept of the swing is interesting in itself the idea that uh, it is playful. Uh, we all know what how wonderful the, the feeling is to fly through the air, but it's also dangerous. You can fall off. You can fly off, and the shoe flying off is interesting. It's uh, maybe a, you know, is he going to catch it? What happens if he doesn't catch it? And he's definitely not going to catch it because his attention is elsewhere. You know, what does that mean? And I don't know. I think there's more to be um, uh, discovered, analysed, and thought through. And that's the problem with icon paintings. We we. We just take them for granted. And this is now the opportunity to really think a bit harder about what it really means as a picture. And well, I gather you've got a whole load of events planned around it. Um, so can you tell our listeners a bit about those? Yeah, so uh, our curator of, of French paintings and head of curatorial, Yuriko Jacquel, has come up with a fantastic series of, of lectures, um, conversations with um, either experts on Fragonard, but also on contemporary artists who take a lot of uh, inspiration from the Rococo style, this sort of um, pinkish and, 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 and wonderful brushwork. So we've got that on one side. Uh, we've got people who, have, uh, there's another contemporary artist called Catherine Yass, who has this very interesting relationship with the painting. She hates it because she thinks it's a complete, um, uh, you know, undermining feminine rights and and you know the the essence of this girl just letting herself go, uh, you know be admired by by this naughty man in the in the in the bushes and at the same time she finds it completely fascinating to see her uh, in a, a domineering pose because she's above everybody else. So that I think that she's very interested in the contradictions within the painting. So we'll we'll try and draw out those those aspects. And I think the the I mean in the long term what the Wallace, as you mentioned earlier, we do have another seven very beautiful paintings by Fragonard, all from different periods of his career. And I think it's 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 an exhibition to be done. For me, Fragonard is the one that really stands out in French 18th century painting. You've got Boucher, who trained him. You've got Watteau. They're all great artists, but Fragonard is the one that has the twist. He goes a bit further. So during the lockdowns, we were very fortunate to get um, uh, money from our sponsors, our patrons, who very kindly um, basically allowed us to relight the 18th century galleries upstairs. So everything is beautiful at the moment. There's glitters, uh, the, the furniture, the clocks, the candlesticks are just uh, uh, you know it has this wonderful glittering effect and then in the middle between two windows with lovely curtains on either side is the swing and I have to say I've never seen it look so absolutely wonderful and then when you look to the left and to the right you will see other paintings by Fragonard so if you're inquisitive enough you will then see uh, the, 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 the treatment of various themes he was very good at doing uh, beautiful landscapes uh, beautiful uh, lovers talking to each other in, in uh, lovely landscapes 
landscapes. Um, there's the famous souvenir, another wonderful, quite mysterious picture of this girl writing the name of her love on a tree. And it was the inspiration of a very good film, very most recently called Le Souvenir. Um, so, you know, the, these paintings still have a, a big, you know, a big effect on, on audiences today and people who, you know, want to delve into the past, but also bring uh, aspects of the past into, into modern day life. After you've seen the wonderful Fragonard, you can also see the other famous painting in the Wallace collection, The Laughing Cavalier, who's now, Franz Hauser's Laughing Cavalier, who's now accompanied by 12 of his mates and Grayson Perry. Tell us about that. So, yeah, so um, it, we now that we can borrow and lend, um, we've done this fantastic show. It's very small, very specific, but it's really about Franz Hauser's portraits of male sitters. Uh, he excelled in, in, in such portraiture. And what we've done, we've selected the very, very best uh, of his work, uh, but we've organised it, we've hung the show in chronological order. So you see him develop as a, as a portrait painter and every portrait is different. He must have a very specific relationship with these uh, very successful um, Dutch entrepreneurs, members of the East India Company who were extremely wealthy, knew how to spend their money by commissioning wonderful clothes, very high, uh, high expensive clothes. And to, to really uh, try and bring them to, to date, we've, we've um, engaged with uh, Grayson Perry, who does the audio guide. So do take the audio guide, because it's really interesting. There are lots of different voices on it, but the main voice throughout is Grayson Perry, who has been very interested in masculine identity. He did a whole series of programs on, on what it means to be a man, uh, how important it is that we, we don't, as men, repress the feminine within, how to express ourselves, don't be so stuck. So when you go through the show, you will see that each man has his own way of expressing himself. And, um, and it's absolutely fascinating to see this, this, this uh, compilation of, of male portraits in one room in, in, here at the Wallace. I'd forgotten, of course, that um, the Wallace collection had this famous case about the will uh, in order, because the, the original bequest was that it, you had to keep the collection as is, you couldn't lend or borrow but that was changed in a court case sort of a couple of years ago yeah i mean you're making it sound very dramatic it was actually a lady wallace said that the collection shall <laughs> remain together and unmixed with other objects that's the wording now you know you can interpret that yeah, nothing must leave nothing must enter but i think uh, because she and her husband richard were great lenders in their own life they loved sharing their collection it was uh, put forth to the charities commission that we could um, if if you would allow us uh, to borrow and lend temporarily so that we can do exhibitions and and really you know we are a national museum we're here to educate our public and the fact that we couldn't lend and borrow really you know it did not enable us to commit to what Richard Wallace would have wanted to be able to make this collection thrive and and be shared and be understood and there's nothing like having an exhibition where you can show the Laughing Cavalier with other portraits by Franz House so this is the first time that Franz House's Laughing Cavalier is seen alongside others and it That's is a very good point actually that makes it that is a unique first exhibition exactly and that's why yeah. we did it and also because you know and and that's why i love working at the Wallace is that we have this relatively well studied collection but it's never been seen in context with other works by artists whether they be furniture cabinet makers uh, arms and armor makers or, or painters and so it's a, it's a great time to work here because we can and so suddenly... of course that's that's what gives you your great opportunity to do the fragonar Completely. You're totally oh, right. How exciting. Of course, it's a whole new era. <laughs> very, very much very a new chapter. And I think Richard Wallace and Lady Wallace would be delighted by, by what's happening here. because oh, really... We've got to get down there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Xavier. That was absolutely fascinating and very, very enjoyable.
Our next guest is Dan Crow, an award-winning publisher and editor. Last year, he was voted Magazine Editor of the Year by the British Society of Magazine Editors, and he's launched several magazines, written books, and been a granter book editor. I'm actually obsessed with Granter, the quarterly magazine of new writing. So I'm particularly interested to know what he's been up to. Well, Dan has now teamed up with Matt Wiley, former art director at New York Times Magazine, partner at Pentagram Design Studio and named Designer of the Year by Creative Review in 2014. Matt was also nominated for a BAFTA for being the creative behind the Killing Eve title sequence. Between them, they've come up with a new idea for a magazine totally ad-free and dedicated to publishing diverse global writing alongside extraordinary art, design and photography. Right, so the magazine they've come up with is called Ink, but it's spelt I-N-Q-U-E. I think you can see what they did there. (laughs) Its editorial aim is to be creatively groundbreaking and for 10 years only, it's going to come out once a year as a limited edition collector's item designed to chronicle the next decade and to be kept and cherished in total defiance of throwaway culture and mass market media consumption. These are all very bold, big aims. And luckily, Dan Crow is here to tell us all about them. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got some incredible people to write for you, although you have missed out on Ed, <laughs> Daisy and Charlotte Metcalf. You have. Yeah, <laughs> maybe next year. <laughs> Uh, we have actually had a few of these people. The reason we know about it is we've had a few of them crowing on our podcast, Ben Ockrey and Edmund Duvall. You've also got many more like Andrew Graham Dixon, Joyce Carol Oates, Hanif Qureshi, Will Self. An amazing lineup. Start by telling us what you're offering that other literary magazines are not. Well, I suppose the fact that there's a, uh, a sort of curated element to this, that there's only going to be 10 issues, uh, one issue a year um, for 10 years, and then, then it's over. So I, I suppose there's a sort of built-in urgency to when I get in touch, <laughs> even though it's, you know, a decade-long project, um, it's still reduced to a finite amount of issues. So there's that. And editorially speaking, what I tend to do is ask people what they would like to do. I, I never sort of say, I would like you to do this. I, For example, I asked Edmund what, what he would like to do. He could, you know, talk about ceramics or, to, uh, you know, write something for me. He's an extraordinary writer. Um, and we alighted upon the idea of writing about um, an amazing pot, one, one pot per issue for 10 years, and then perhaps having a, an art show at the end of it. So it was a sort of hybrid answer that included an art show and, um, and, a, and a small piece of text for each issue. So I think there's a, a lot of freedom to be had there. And also, yeah, we are shooting quite high um, with regards to the um, contributors and, and what we're saying we're doing um, in terms of production values and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I try and throw as much freedom at the potential contributors as, as possible to make it really hard to say no. Two things really got me excited. One is what you call your dead interview. In the first issue, for example, you've got Margaret Atwood interview with George Orwell. And the next thing is that you've got a profile in the first issue of my absolute biggest crush, Carl Ove Knausgaard. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, what? I love Carl Ove. <laughs> you told me I was your biggest crush. <laughs> uh, sorry. How I, long have I, you been having this thing for Carl Ove? Forever, forever, because oh it takes forever to read his well, books. Just because he's some hairy Scandinavian. <laughs> he's, he's so... A, 
He's a gorgeous hairy Scandinavian. You're so predictable. <laughs> and, uh, of course, he's famous the world over for his six autobiographical novels, My Strong. Yeah, he's very handsome. Um, oh, and, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, he's very handsome. I and, can't and, believe you've fallen for this. No, oh, no, no, well, the, the work is just fantastic. So tell us, um, first of all, because this is urgent because I've got such a crush, um, <laughs> about your profile of him and then about the dead interview. Um, well, the profile about him is talking about his new work and, and the direction he's going in um, after having finished his sort of enormous uh, project of, of um, autobiographies um, and being shot by Jake uh, Davison, who's he's one of the most exciting young photographers working today. Um, yeah, it was great to, to meet with him. Um, and uh, the guy's really, really, you know, funny, um, which was the, the, the surprise, I suppose, in a way, one's used to him being quite bleak. And yeah, it was just a, a beautiful and long interview. So we're really excited to have him in the issue. The Dead interview was an idea that I came up with when I was editing a, a literary magazine called Zembla, which was subsequently turned into a, a granter anthology of interviews, which you obviously get, you know, it's it's a fictional idea um, to, to pull um, authors into the realm of interviewing a dead hero or a dead writer or somebody that they um, basically want to fire some questions at who, who's dead. And I thought this was a good idea because it's just really tempting to be able to talk to somebody who's <laughs> who's not alive anymore and whose answers you can format yourself. So I wanted a, a, a sort of commissioning question that was so tempting that people couldn't say no. And, um, and Margaret said yes. So that's really exciting. And yeah, she interviews George Orwell it's a, a really beautiful and strange interview and you kind of you, you get pulled into it because you know it's Margaret writing this but you really do genuinely get pulled into the the idea that it's a, a conversation that's happening between Margaret Atwood, George Orwell and they're talking about surveillance in the 21st century and how that has moved on from surveillance in the in the you know in 1984 for example in his novel uh, which is to say uh, it's exactly the same and um, he, he um, yeah it, it's beautiful and um Margaret enjoyed it, and it's going to be the first of 10 dead interviews that are going to run throughout um, the series of, of Inks. God, that's absolutely fascinating. It is a very good idea, though. It is yeah, a it's very a good brilliant idea. It's idea, very compelling. It? I think, yeah. I think uh, if I was a magazine editor, I would nick that off you in a heartbeat. So give us some um, stats. How many people are writing for your magazine? How many copies of the first edition will there be, and how much does it cost, and where can I buy it? Um, okay, so there's, I think there's 56 writers in the first issue. Several of these pieces uh, come in at over 10,000 words. Gosh! Um, the, I mean, th those are mostly pieces of uh, fiction. Wells Tower, uh, Max Porter, Hanif Qureshi um, have all written pieces that are over 10,000 words. And they're all just extraordinary short stories. I mean, I, I'm, I'm bound to say that, but th they are some of the best short stories I've ever read and be lucky enough to work on. The magazine is £55. I know it sounds a lot, but um, production-wise, uh, it's a very beautiful object. But it's a good deal, uh, and it's even better because there's a limited amount, so they're going to become collector's issues. You can't really... How many editions? Um, how, how many copies? Of the we're printing yes. 6,000 uh, per issue. And I, can I walk into my local WH Smith? Or no, I, no, you I can't. Buy? Part of the reason why we're doing this, we made a list of things that we didn't really like about magazine publishing because I've been doing magazines for 20 years or so. And one of the problems is the distribution network. It's not been updated for 30 years and it doesn't really work. 
So the whole idea of like sending 4,000 copies to Smiths and the ones that they don't sell, they just pulp them. Well, that, that doesn't make sense uh, for the environment, for the seller, for anyone really. So you can't walk into your local Smiths because I'm not uh, letting them have any. But what you can do is look on our website uh, and uh, either subscribe for one issue or, or all 10, or you can go to a limited number of uh, beautiful Book set, independent booksellers that are located all over the world. I think there's about 150 globally where you can buy them. So some of the best bookshops in the in the world uh, will have them and galleries and so forth. Right. So we're gonna. When, when is it coming out? Uh, the 16th of November. I know you're very. You really want to push the idea that this is a beautiful object that you keep. Is it going to be online as well, or is it just a beautiful print thing that you own and a kind of anti-online social media statement? Well, it's not so much sort of anti-online. It, it's just I want people to enjoy this in a, in a physical way where they're with an object, they're with themselves and, and they're not staring at a screen. So th- no, there isn't... Um, an, a web version of this? No, there there are there is going to be a uh, a PDF version at a more affordable price for those who can't afford the fifty five pounds for the issue. Ooh, oh, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I think that's well that's letting the side I, down. I, my my worry is that there might be students who are interested in in finding out about this that that can't blow fifty five quid on a, a literary magazine. So it's really for them. But it's not something that we're gonna we're, we're gonna you know watch that and see how it goes. Maybe it's not. Do you know what's weird is that. This is actually episode 55 of our podcast. Wow. That is comic. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty weird. That is amazing. Wow. Right, I think that's it. That, that is brilliant. You've sold me on it. I was a bit put off by the title, but I'm completely sold and I'm going to buy it. Well, well done. Fantastic. Really pleased. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's all we've got time for this week. But of course, if you want to enjoy lots of other stuff, go to countryintownhouse.co.uk forward slash whatever. <laughs> well, if you stick newsletter after that forward slash, you can see the Country and Townhouse weekly newsletter and the Great British Brands monthly newsletter. This month in November, it's all about Great British Brands Zero and climate change. That's where you'll find the newsletters. And as Ed says, go to countryandtownhouse.co.uk for everything else. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. And what about Carol Annette's fantastic podcast, Charlotte? It is indeed a fantastic podcast. That's called House Guest. It's a brilliant podcast and it's also on our website. Yeah, we love that. See you next week. See you. See you.